You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. It is really, really good to see you. If you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you all had a very, very happy Black Friday. I hope it was a good one for you as it was for me. Let's look together this morning at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, And I will go ahead and prepare you a bit. For the next 45 minutes or so, we are about to nerd out, all right? It is going to get quite nerdy up in here, and what that's going to mean is some of you are going to love this, some of you are going to hate this, and I am going to have a lot of fun. So let's get in together. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Matthew's uh, gospel account. Here it is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, or as it reads in the Greek, Biblos, Geneseos, Iesu, Christu, Hugh, Dawid, Hugh, Abraham. And this, yes, thank you. Starting strong, baby. Here we go. Uh, This is an incredibly important phrase to begin Matthew's biography of Jesus. The Greek word geneseos, translated here in the ESV as genealogy, is actually the exact same word where we get the title of our book of Genesis. It is the word used in the opening lines of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Septuagint, and it means beginning or origin. The beginning or the origin. And so this opening line thrusts us kind of into what Matthew is trying to do with his gospel. He's writing with an agenda. He has a point he is trying to make. He's trying to draw our collective attention to something. If you were a first century Jew sitting with the church hearing this read, this phrase would start to send alarm bells off in your mind everywhere. You would likely be very familiar with the Greek Old Testament. And you would see the connection right off the bat that Matthew is saying, this story of Jesus that I am introducing you to, this story you are about to read is about the new beginning. It is about the recreation of the whole world. Two scholars even go as far as to translate it as the book of the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. It is not just a story about a first century rabbi who had some really good things to say. It is much, much bigger than that. It's about you. It's about me. It's about Columbia. It's about Lexington. It's about the United States. It's about the whole world, how the creator God of the universe stepped back into human history, gone awry, to rescue and save all of creation from top to bottom, to bring about the new beginning of the whole world. And Matthew emphasizes this by three titles he gives us for Jesus next. The Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Messiah, or as it reads here, Christ. The Greek word is Christos. And it's not actually Jesus's last name, believe it or not. He was not Mr. Christ. That was not his his deal. Christ was his title. And it can also be translated king, the king, or the anointed one. Christos was uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, and it was a figure read about throughout the Old Testament, a figure who sort, of, who sort of sat on the horizon of human history that would one day come to usher in God's healing and life-giving rule and reign over the world, what the prophets of the Old Testament would call the kingdom of God. 
that this Messiah would be the one to come and bring this in to reality, which is why the next title is the Son of David. This brings us back to what we just finished studying in our last series, if you were with us, on the life of David. This was a well-known moniker for the Messiah. It harkened back to how God promised David, and you can read this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that through David's lineage, through his family line, God's kingdom would be established forever, that the Messiah would come from David's family. And then he says, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Israel, who God told in Genesis 12 that he would bless the entire world through his family. That all who would be sons of Abraham would be sons of God and part of God's family. Matthew's point here is that this Jesus is fulfilling the promises that God gave through Abraham. So in one absolutely jam-packed opening line, In this gospel, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the climax to the story of Israel and to the story of human history itself, who has come to usher in this new creation, this kingdom of God. And we are just getting started. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, or with the story of Israel in particular, you know that it is a story in search of an ending, that the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. When you, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi and our English translations, or the books of Chronicles, if you were a Jewish reader, it ends on basically a big cliffhanger. Like, there's no resolution. It's a giant to be continued, or a big ellipsis, a big dot, dot, dot. The whole thing is pointing forward to this hope of a future Messiah who is yet to come. And if you were a Jew in the time of this writing, you would have been angry anticipating the coming of this king, of when was God going to deliver on this promise of the Messiah. And so all in all, this is not a bad opening line to Matthew's gospel, right? This is not a bad introduction to who this Jesus is, but here's why this matters for us. About a month ago, right around the time or right around the day after Halloween, something very special happened. On radio stations everywhere, Mariah Carey began to get a lot of airtime. And what that signals for us, right, is that our our culture has now switched. It has shifted into the Christmas season. And some of you I know are like, hashtag not my Christmas season. My Christmas season starts after Thanksgiving. To you, I would say, that's nice, but let's be honest. The holiday wars have been fought, and Christmas has won. Thanksgiving lost, Christmas won. You know it, I know it, we all know it, right? But there's a reason, I think, why we do this, why we seem to shift into Christmas season so early on, and it seems to get earlier and earlier every single year, because there is a certain type of anticipation that we really enjoy. There's a certain type of anticipation that we like. When we know something good is coming, we like to soak it up for all that it's worth. And what may surprise you is this has long been the practice of Christians throughout history, intentionally anticipating Christmas intentionally looking ahead to this time where we celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. Now, for the Christians before us, it almost certainly involved a lot less Mariah Carey, but it was a season of hopeful expectation much the same. It's a season that you heard Brandon talk about just a few minutes ago called Advent. The English word Advent, excuse me, comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming. And obviously the Advent season is primarily focused on the first coming of Jesus some 2,000 years ago as a baby in a manger, what the Jews were anxiously anticipating finally arriving, but also his second coming in view when he returns as God's forever king who is ushering in the new creation. And as we mentioned before, Advent begins the fourth Sunday before Christmas and ends on Christmas Eve, which if you're quick at math or remember what Brandon said, that makes today the first Sunday of this season. 
And throughout Christian history, Advent has been a time of preparation, a time of preparing, a time of preparation for adoration, preparation to set our minds and our hearts and our hopes and our worship onto Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Christ. And so that's why we've written the Advent guides available to you in the lobby, which if you haven't picked one up, please do so today. But that is also why for the next few Sundays, we're going to look together at the first coming of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. We're going to look at Matthew's record of Jesus's first coming, that it would help us more adore Christ in this season and live in hopeful anticipation of his second coming. And so verse one is fantastic, but verse one leads us into the really good stuff the really good stuff, the meat of this passage, beginning in verse two, a genealogy. A what? A genealogy, a family tree. Some of you are here and you're thinking, man, you know, Bailey, I've read Matthew before and I don't remember a genealogy at all. And you're right because you skip it because everybody skips it, but we're not going to, we're going to read it together. And I know you might be thinking, do we have to? And the answer is yes, we do. So let's go. We're going to start in verse two and we'll read the whole thing together. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king." And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, also uh, could be translated Asa, it might have a footnote in your Bible for that, he was a wicked king of Israel, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, or Amnon, might have another footnote by that, and Amnon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. All right, everybody still with me? Good, because we're not done. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Elizer, and Elizer the father of Mathan, or Matan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Whew, everybody exhale for just a moment. Now, how many of you read that and thought, who cares, right? Like, goodness gracious, this is a laundry list of, needs, uh, list of names. Like, why is this even in here? Like, what a boring and archaic way to start a story. It seems like Matthew could have used some coaching from Stephen King on how to really pull your audience in, right? Like, this, is, this seems to be a problem. But let me see if I can explain to you why this is here. 
Now, let's suppose for a moment that you are in a scenario where you are meeting someone new and you want to put your best foot forward. Maybe going into a job interview or a networking event. Maybe you're on a first date or meeting your future spouses or your future in-law for the first time. Chances are you wouldn't start the convo off with a list of your relatives, right? Like you're not going to enter into that conversation saying something like, oh, it is so nice to meet you. Yes, I am Michael, son of Thomas, son of Liston II, son of Liston I before him. You wouldn't do that. That'd be a quick swipe left. You know, like that is not going to happen. As modern, as modern 21st century Westerners, we would lead with vastly different things. We would lead in with other things. We would list our accomplishments. We would talk about our job, our job title, where we went to school. We might throw out our kids' accomplishments. We would put our proverbial or even maybe our literal resume out there in front of people, what we've done, what we've accomplished. But this is not how it would have worked in the first century world. For people in first century cultures, and even for many people across the world today, their family tree, their genealogy, is their resume. It is what their resume would have been if they were in our modern world. Where, who you came from is what said the most about you. Your family tree in this time validated you before other people. And so if you wanted to establish your identity with someone, you would list off your relatives in order to do so. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, for many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession down the city street, we watch figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are on the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. What he's saying is this whole thing is like the crescendo and a climax to Jesus the Messiah. All of this to say that for what for you and me is a who cares passage of the Bible, if you were a first century Jew, you would find this compelling. This matters, and you would be paying very careful attention to what is being said here. And the truth is, is there is much more going on here than just some list of names. I'll try to show you a little bit of what I mean. Uh, do we have any Star Wars people in here? Raise your hand. Okay, now let me, let me clarify. By Star Wars people, I don't mean you enjoy going to the movies from time to time. I mean Star Wars people. We have any of those people in here? Patrick Coker, Ken Blackwell, I'm looking for you. Got a standing in the back. That's the most like crowd response I have ever gotten as a preacher. This is going good places. Wonderful. Sweet. Uh, all right, here's the deal. Uh, if you're a Star Wars person, like the rest of us go to see these movies and we enjoy them. We find them entertaining. We can kind of loosely keep up with the plot. Like, it's a fine, it's a fun experience. But you, when you go see these movies, you have an altogether different experience than the one we have, right? Like, we go in, and we don't care that Finn and Rose's plot line feels forced. Like, we're not worried about that. We're not concerned with all these new abilities the Force apparently has. We're not worried about that disruption or anything like that. But you, you, on the other hand, you see all the things we don't see. You pick up on all the nuances that we are just completely and utterly blind to. So, for example, in Solo, when that certain somebody shows up at the end, which I'm not 
too sure why I'm worried about spoiling a two-year-old movie, but whatever. When that certain somebody shows up at the end and the hologram and the rest of us are like, I thought Ewan McGregor like cut him in half 20 years ago. What's happening? You aren't fooled in the slightest. You know that he has been alive and well for a long, long time. Revived by Talzin, the mother of the Night Sisters, given robotic legs so he could plot his revenge on Obi-Wan Kenobi. Or in Rogue One, when you hear them page General Sindula, you're like, what? She's still alive? What does this mean for Ezra and Ahsoka and Kanan, are they there too? Are we going to get to see them? And you always knew that Saw Guerrero was not a new character. He was not a new character at all. All you had to do was watch The Clone Wars, which is not just a kid's show, by the way. But all you had to do was watch Clone Wars, and you would know he's been around for a while in this rebellion as well. Or when Jen is flipping through the Imperial Files, and she comes to that one labeled Darksaber, while the rest of us are like, well, we don't even notice that. You're sitting on the edge of your seat in the movie theater like, are you kidding me? The one weapon that has been designed to combat a lightsaber is being investigated and being researched by the Empire? What does this mean? Are we going to get to see one of these? And you're secretly hoping that in the new Mandalorian TV series, you're actually going to get to see one because whereas the rest of us have no idea what a Mandalorian is, you know that the Mandalorians were the first ones to create the darksaber and wielded it for hundreds of years in the galaxy's history. What I'm saying is what Matthew is doing here is a little bit like that. All right, that's where we're at. On the surface, what he's doing is he's laying out a fairly normal genealogy. He's explaining how a poor rabbi from a backwoods town like Nazareth became the Messiah. But in the midst of it, he is dropping a bunch of Jewish Easter eggs, which I know that's kind of a weird phrase to say now that I've actually <laughs> put it out there. Uh, but he's dropping a bunch of these Easter eggs. Under the surface, it is not a normal genealogy at all. Let me show you what I mean. The first thing we see is that the people he includes are not the people you would expect him to include. Like there are some great people mentioned here and some not so great people listed here. Matthew does not sugarcoat Jesus' genealogy at all. In fact, it could be argued that he does the exact opposite. He includes both people who are godly, who followed the Lord and served him, as well as people who did a lot of terrible things. You have Solomon, who built the temple for God, the wisest man allegedly who ever lived. Seems like a good addition to the genealogy, right? Followed by Rehoboam, who during his reign, the kingdom of Israel was split into two and basically never recovered. You have kings like Uzziah and Asa and Amnon, who did not follow God, but worshiped other gods and served other gods and led the people in the same way, followed by guys like Jotham and Josiah and Hezekiah who were godly and upright and led the people towards righteousness. But there's more. Not everyone in this list is Jewish. This is another interesting feature. There are Jews and Gentiles mentioned in Jesus's origin story. Again, this is a big deal because Matthew's society was one that boasted itself on its ethnic purity and its family tree. People of other ethnicities were generally omitted, but Matthew goes out of his way to include both Jew and non-Jew Gentile, which is startling because the Messiah was supposed to be king of the Jews, right? That was supposed to be his claim to fame. Wasn't he supposed to save the Jews from their oppressors, the Gentiles? So this is significant, and we'll talk a little bit more about why in a minute, but another unique feature of this genealogy is that it's not just men 
There are women in this genealogy. Amen. Sisters, you can go ahead and say amen on that one. Like, this is unbelievable. This would not have happened in this society. And it has some serious ramifications for how we understand the value of women in Jesus' community. And this was especially true for the first century audience. First century Jewish culture was a patriarchal culture. Women rarely made appearances in a genealogy, especially a genealogy of a royal bloodline. But there are five women listed in this list. This alone would have been enough to make it really interesting. But what's even more compelling, or what's even stranger, is who these women are. Traditionally, there were four matriarchs in the Jewish tradition, four women who tend to be held up in honor for their place in the Jewish story. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, and Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. They were called the mothers of Israel. Those four were center stage. But those four are not the four that Matthew includes here. Instead, look at who Matthew includes. He includes Rahab, a Canaanite sex worker from the city of Jericho. Tamar, also a Canaanite, who we read about in Genesis 38, who when her husband died and her father-in-law, Judah, refused to give her the younger son in marriage, as was the custom of the day, she dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant. It's not a G-rated story. Then there's Ruth, another non-Jew, a Moabite. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter and therefore were hated by Jew and Gentile alike in the ancient Near East. And then there's the one that you should know by now, the one that Matthew calls the wife of Uriah. And that is intentional language that he is using there to make you remember Bathsheba and what happened to Bathsheba. He's drawing your mind back to how she was taken by force by David. Matthew wants us to see a connection that these four women are leading and pointing to the next one, that these four unlikely women are pointing to the next unlikely woman, Mary, in verse 16, the eventual, eventual mother of Jesus, who in a lot of ways has been elevated and admired in certain church traditions. But it's worth highlighting that in her day, she would not have been treated this way. She was a young, unwed, pregnant girl in a hyper-conservative society likely the subject of gossip and rejection. And Matthew is saying, what, he, what he's driving at in all of this is that, look, all sorts of people, especially unlikely people, are all wrapped up in Jesus' story. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. Not just men, but women. Not just Jewish men who have their act together. No, all sorts of people, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, moral outsiders, people excluded by culture and society, people you would think God could never use and never love are all found in the family tree of Jesus. But that's just one thing lying beneath the surface. There's more. Another is the numbers that Matthew emphasizes. So in verse 17, this is what you see. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, to be quite honest, this is where things are about to go all Star Wars superfan, all right? We're about, we're about to get in deep right here, and there are probably five to ten things I could draw your attention to here, but for your sake, I'm only going to do one, okay? Matthew is using a literary device here called gematria, or gematria, I don't really know how to pronounce it. 
It's a device used in ancient Hebrew culture where numbers held symbolic meaning. So in the Hebrew language, there were no numbers in the alphabet. Instead, each letter also doubled as a number. It'd be like in English if the letter A was equivalent to 1 and B, 2 and C, 3 and so forth and so on. And certain numbers carried special or significant weight. Uh, Think of it this way. If I were to say that 23 is the greatest basketball player to ever play the game, who do you think of? And don't you dare say LeBron, by the way. All right? No, LeBron can be king when he gets another ring. Who do you think of? Michael Jordan. Thank you very much. Jordan. Jordan made 23-23. So imagine you're watching a basketball game with a friend and someone says to you, man, Westbrook, he can really ball, but he will never be another 23. You would know that he is talking about Michael Jordan and that he is correct, right? Yes, exactly. Likewise, in the Jewish tradition, the number 14 carried special weight like this. It was derived from the numerical value of King David's name. The consonants in David's name, and in Hebrew there are only consonants, there are no vowels, uh, are dalet, which has the value of four, vav, which has the value of six, and dalet again for the value of four, leading you to a total of 14. So when a Jewish person, person hears the number 14 dropped, Like you think, Jordan, when you hear the number 23, it immediately puts in their brains King David and subsequently the Messiah. So in this succession of 14s, Matthew is not so subtly going 14, 14, 14, David, 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 Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. Now that's, that's cool, but it gets better. There's another more important layer going on. Around this time, there was a well-known prophecy from the book of Daniel that said the exile would last for 77, or it can be translated 70 weeks. It's not really a literal number. That's not the way ancient prophecy worked, but it was 77-year time periods, or right around the time of 490 years, give or take. This is from Daniel 9, 24 through 25. This is what it reads. 70 weeks, or sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, or rather seven sevens. He's saying from the time of the return of the exile, from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah for context, until the Meshiach, until the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, there will be 70 sevens. Now, seven is another special number uh, in ancient Hebrew culture. It comes with up in the Bible all the time. Every seven days is a Sabbath, a Sabbath day. Every seven years is a Sabbath year. And every seventh, seventh year or every 49th year was something called a Jubilee year. Now, the Jubilee year was a fascinating socioeconomic and political innovation of the God of Israel. Like it was absolutely, I mean, mind-boggling fantastic. And we don't have a ton of time to get into all of it here today. But basically the gist of it was every 49 years, in the year of Jubilee, all the slaves were to be freed and all the land or possessions was meant to be returned to its original owner. In other words, it was a year when everything in society was meant to get reset, when every captive was set free and every debt canceled. Sound familiar yet? 
tracking with me? Here we go. Uh, in Daniel, we read about these 77s once again. Not so much, again, as a literal number because that's not how ancient prophecy worked, but if you do the math, it does, 490 years, does put you generally around the time of Jesus. And Daniel, but what Daniel is saying is a long time into the future, way down the road, the Messiah will come to bring the seventh seven and usher in the Jubilee to end all Jubilees, to bring the Sabbath of Sabbaths, an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity and justice. It won't just be King David all over again. It will be better than ever before. Now, this prophecy in particular was very popular around the time of Jesus, in part because it had been around 490 years since it was given, but also because the people in the land still felt in exile, still felt like they were living in exile. While they lived in their homeland, they were still under the oppressive rule of a foreign government, the Roman Empire. And so what Matthew is doing here with these numbers is he is factoring in a well-known prophecy, not through the lens of years, but through generations. In fact, Matthew actually cuts out a few generations. At least three names are missing here, which was not scandalous whatsoever. It was an accepted practice during this time. Uh, Most historians in Matthew's day would trim their genealogies to make specific points or emphasize certain things. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing here. Matthew has three groupings of 14 generations, 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. Each 14 is two sets of seven, right? That's how it works. Two sevens equal 14. That's how math goes. So two sevens from Abraham to David, two sevens from David to the Babylonian exile, and two sevens from the Babylonian exile to Jesus, which means Abraham to Jesus makes six sevens, which makes Jesus's birth the launch of what? the seventh seven. And I know, listen, I know that is incredibly nerdy and a little tinfoil hatty, all right? Like, I I, I get that, and I know I can see some of you sitting here trying really hard to do that math in your head, like, all right, seven times six, carry the one, divide by two, where are we at? Listen, I get all of that. But what what is happening here is Matthew is trying to very directly to his Jewish audience say, Jesus is the seventh seven. He is dropping this Easter egg that Jesus' birth is the beginning of the true and ultimate year of Jubilee. That what Jesus has come to do is he has come to make everything right that sin has made wrong. That peace and joy and hope will be restored in him and in him alone. That he is the true and ultimate rest for all of creation. That he is the true and final one who has come to forgive all debts and set every single captive free. I mean, put yourself there. You're a Jew. You've known the prophecies. You've known the promises. You've lived your whole life underneath the boot of Rome, and you've asked yourself, when, Lord, when are you going to deliver on your promises? When are you going to come and set the captive free? When are you going to come and make right everything that sin has made wrong? And Matthew here is saying, now, now, he has come now. God's promise is being kept now. And you thought this was just a list of names. But in this season of preparation, what does this mean for us? So Matthew's obviously doing a lot here. But how, what do we take from all of this and apply to our own situation? A couple of things for you, and this is where we'll end. The first is this. It's that the Christmas story or the story of Jesus, if you prefer, is our story. And here's what I mean. 
What Matthew is laying out here from top to bottom in this text is that Jesus is the climax of human history. As one pastor and theologian I read recently put it, to understand the Christmas story is to understand Christianity itself. That the story of Jesus is a declaration of a new reality. It is not allegory. It is not proverb. It is not advice. It is, in the words of the New Testament authors, news. Good news. Gospel. You know, a lot of the times when we talk about Jesus, we talk about him in individual or personal ways. Things like he can come and fill up what is lacking in your soul. What you are looking to find in sex and drugs and money and status or whatever else, Jesus meets in full. And that's certainly not an untrue or a bad way to talk about Jesus. But what Matthew is pointing us to here is first, the reality is, is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king to come. He is the new reality of life on earth. And the rest of Matthew's book is really all about outlining people who either submitted to this reality or, and who adjusted their lives to this truest of all stories or didn't. And so the question that each of us has to ask, whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, is what story am I living in? What story am I acting like is ultimately true? Because the truth of the matter is, is we are all what I would call narrative animals, all of us. We all have different stories that we tell ourselves to make sense out of the world that we live in. Call it a worldview if you like, but whatever it is, the story you live in will shape the trajectory of your life. It will shape who or whatever you become for better or for worse. And so what we, what we are invited to do with this introduction to Jesus is ask ourselves, what is my story? What is the reality I am living in? The one that says life is found in more money and more possessions? The one that says more ease and more comfort? The one that says my life is my own? Or the narrative of Jesus? Because the rest of Matthew, as well as the rest of Scripture, claims that the story of Jesus is the one true story of the world. It is not an interpretation. It is not a way of many ways. It is the truth and the way. And this whole thing is an open invite to you from Jesus to join in. And to be honest, if you're anything like me, the temptation for most of us, I think, is we want to drag Jesus into our story. What we want is Jesus the therapist, or Jesus the life coach, or Jesus the cosmic vending machine, or self-help guru, or a Jesus to just baptize our agenda, to bless our five-year plan, to bless our career path, or our family, or our upbringing, to bless us and then let us go about our way. But it doesn't work like that, and that is a recipe for frustration. The last thing on Jesus' mind is your American dream. He did not come to make you healthy, wealthy, or wise. He was crucified, he was put to death, and he came as a king. And as we'll talk about in a few more weeks, a king is all he is willing to be for you, nothing less. So our job isn't to drag Jesus into our story, but for us to repent and be drawn into Jesus' story. Which leads us to the second and last thing, that you are invited into Jesus' story. You are invited into this story. 
and his family. There's Rahab, the sex worker, Ruth, the Moabite, Uzziah, the wicked king, and so forth and so, so on. All of these people with all of these stories, with all of these horrid details, adultery, murder, civil war, slavery, generational poverty, and the like. And all of that was broken and evil. Yet, somehow, God takes these broken stories and these broken people, and he redeems them. He turns evil on its head and uses it for good. In the language of the scriptures, he brings beauty from the ashes. This is what God does. And the inclusion of these outcasts and screw-ups in Jesus' family tree ought to be radically encouraging for you this morning. Because if there is room for them there, there is room for you too. If there is room for them, there is room for you. Perhaps a better way to say this would be who Jesus came from tells us who he came for. The reason that these people are in his family tree is partially the reason why you get to be in the downline of it. A person who makes their living by sinning is just as welcome to join Jesus's family as the most moral, good, upstanding citizen there is. And they both must do so by trusting in Jesus's grace, not in their own record. And the truth is, we have such a problem, right, with the fact that Jesus saves terrible people. Like, often we use this as a defeater belief. Like, I can't believe in Jesus because Christians aren't great. Man, we reject, the ver- we reject him for the very reason why it's good news for us. He loves you at your worst, and he'll stand by you when you make him look bad. That's the whole point, That's why we sing. That's why we praise. Because he was good to us when we didn't deserve it. Because he was good and I am not. And when you become a follower of Jesus, you are in the language of the New Testament, adopted into the family of God. You become a part of the offspring of Abraham and Isaac and David and Sarah and the rest. His origin story becomes your origin story. And perhaps this should be especially encouraging for you around this time of year, because for some of us, this time of year is not filled with hopeful expectation, but rather something we would call dreadful expectation, due in large part to the brokenness perhaps in your own family. But the good news in the worst of moments this Christmas season for you, the worst brokenness you encounter, that moment where your uncle is being his worst self or whatever it may be, you can know that your biological family is not your truest family. But Christ is your truest family. But also, everywhere else in the world, almost around every corner that we encounter in life, the world treats you like your resume is what matters most. That who you know, who you're connected to, what your social network is, your credentials, or whatever it may be, are what matters the most, but not in Jesus's community. The only thing that matters in Jesus's family is if your name is now on that list, if you are now found in him. And if you're like me, that is incredibly good news for you. Because if you're like me, you show up before God with all kinds of mess, with pride and humiliation, with some success and a whole lot of failure. And behind you is a string of disappointments and letdowns and shame. And you think, how can God love me? How can God use me? How can God use this? But the news of this story is that he can and he does. 
God, through Christ, God doesn't say, that's it, I'm done with you. I won't put up with that anymore. Instead, he says, I will not forsake you. I won't abandon you. I won't leave you. I will not give up on you. I've come to do the exact opposite. I've come to free you. I've come to cancel your debt. I've come to make right everything that you've made wrong. I'm not done with you yet. I have a promise to keep. And that is the message of Christmas. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you uh, for the good news of your grace and mercy to us found through Jesus that the story of Jesus is the one true story of the whole world that we are caught up in, that you sent your son into our world to save us from the top to bottom, to make right everything that our sin had made wrong. And that is what we celebrate during this season, that you did not leave us to our own demise, but you entered into human history to save us. God, I pray that as we go about this season with all, I mean, all of the stuff that is, I mean, rightfully good and worth celebrating uh, and enjoying, that we wouldn't miss this, that we wouldn't lose the forest for the trees. But God, that you would continuously bring to our minds and prepare our hearts to adore that this is the reality that we now live in, that you have been good and kind and gracious to us, and that because of your work on the cross and your resurrection, we can now be found in your family tree. You won't abandon us, but you will welcome us gladly into your arms. We thank you for that reality. We thank you again for your love and your mercy to us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.